that as we reflect on what you will do for us in the future, I pray we would see how it is meant through the power of your spirit to bring hope and purpose in the present. Lord, I pray for grace to understand your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, I want you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning, we're going to see how the gospel affects our view of the future. How the gospel affects our view of the future. We've been looking at gospel implications. And the prayer this summer has been that we would continually dwell and never believe for a second that we graduate from the truths of the gospel, but it's those truths that guide us in practical day-to-day living. It uh, reminds me of when Paul was writing to the Romans, and he said he could not wait to get there to preach the gospel to them. He wasn't speaking of the fact that they hadn't understood Christ. He was speaking to them that, that the gospel are those implications and those truths and all that God has given us in Christ and we never get away from it. And and it's pondering and reflecting by faith that we understand how to live. Today what we're going to seek to do is we're going to look at how the gospel affects our view of the future, but we're going to see how that view of the future brings hope to the present. It brings hope to the present. And, And so what we're going to try to do is we're going to look at this morning four passages Four passages where we're going to reflect on two simple points in each passage. We're going to take a passage and we're going to look at the gospel promise, the gospel hope, and then we're going to look at the gospel implication. And we're going to do four passages that deal with the future. And I pray that we would see not only the pattern that the Apostle Paul uses, but the pattern the Apostle Peter uses, but that we will see how this is meant to not just be information about the future. It's meant to be reflection about how to live in the present. I was reading an illustration, uh, a guy that uh, is beloved by pastors, but I would recommend his writings to you. He's a pastor by the name of Kent Hughes, and he has an amazing ability of illustrating. He's a wonderful man, And, and he wrote about Spain, And how he said, when Spain had extended her conquest to the ends of the then-known world and controlled both sides of the Mediterranean at the Straits of Gibraltar, her coins proudly pictured the pillars framing a scroll inscribed with the Latin words. So if I say this incorrectly, Latin friends, please forgive me. Ne plus ultra. And what does that mean? It meant no more beyond. The coin that Spain had meant no more beyond. The idea was that's it. But then something happened in 1492 when the new world was discovered and Columbus sailed. Guess what happened to the coins in Spain? They changed the inscription. The inscription changed. There was no longer a nay. Now it just said plus ultra. And you know what that meant? More beyond. Before it was no more beyond. And now there was more discovered, and it meant more beyond. And Hughes says, the change from the inscription affected a revolution in world culture, global economy, and geopolitics. And then he so 
pointedly says, the change also serves as a handy example of what is needed in the spiritual geography of modern men and women because so many live in the stifling delusion that there is no more beyond. I tell you, I, I was in a seminary class in Portland when I was 23 years old, 24, and a professor very eloquently explained how people that don't have hope in this world, they have to live for something. Some people take it to its most logical end, and they become nihilist. They, they, I think you see this in, in a lot of the tragedies we've seen in the school shootings, people that recognize that the worldview that the world offers has no hope. What happens when you carry that worldview to its logical end? Death. But there's some people that don't like to look at their worldview that way, so they say, you know what, even though we come from nothing, we come from dirt, we come from muck in the ocean, we're just products of chance, we need to find meaning in how we live. And those people often find meaning by sending their, their son or daughter to college, by saving up their entire life to take that dream trip around the world. See, they're looking for meaning in the midst of nothing. And our professor looked at us and said, but here's the problem. So many of the world says they're theists and they believe in God, yet they live as theists, but they live in a world as if there's nothing else. He called them theistic existentialists, people that say they believe in God, yet they act and they process as if this is all that they have. I tell you, when we lose sight of the future, we can get really filled with despair. We can get overwhelmed. We can, there is a clinical type of depression, but there's a depression that comes out of not realizing what the hope you have in the future. You ever been depressed that, and it was related to the fact that you couldn't get your eyes off of the temporary and put on the eternal? And one of the realities when it comes to the Christian life is that the scripture is filled with the promises of God. And so many times when we read about these promises and we read about theology in these letters, it's the apostles that are reminding us of what is promised and bringing it into the present, helping us to understand. I, um, this morning, four passages, four passages. The first one, 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to move through these quickly because we have no way of covering these fully in depth, but I want you to see a pattern here. Four passages that illustrate how the gospel affects our view of the future, bringing hope into the present. 1 Corinthians 15. When you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it's, it's typically a passage that you might hear on Easter Sunday. Over the last several years, I, I love going to 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter, but it's a passage for day-to-day -day living. And in that passage, Paul reminds us what the gospel is all about. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says, For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There it is, the gospel, the very gospel that he said he was not ashamed of, the gospel that was the power of God unto salvation, and, and here it is. He, he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
And he went, goes on, and in this chapter, all 58 verses are filled with the necessity and the implications of the resurrection. But one of the things here that is so phenomenal is that when he mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ in verse 4, it sometimes can be forgotten or it can be lost sight of that verse 4 has a direct link to the future resurrection of believers. And you see it mentioned in verse 4, but jump down to verse 20. In verse 20, he develops his argument, and he says, in, um, before we get to verse 20, notice how he shows the hopelessness apart from a resurrection. He says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And then in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But then he speaks now back in relationship to what he said in verse 4, in verse 20. Look what he says in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And what is he going to illustrate here? He says, let me tell you about how wonderful this resurrection is because it doesn't just involve his resurrection. It then says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, what does that mean, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? And, and, and looking at a couple of study Bibles, I like to get helpful tidbits on. I liked how they phrase this. The ESV study Bible says that the first fruits or the first of many others, he says, and this is what he phrases, the term first fruits refers to a first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop. Therefore, Christ's resurrection body gives a foretaste of what those of believers will be like. Another uh, source puts it like this. This speaks of the first installment of harvest to eternal life in which Christ's resurrection will precipitate and guarantee that all of the saints who have died will be resurrected also. What a tremendous promise that God, in his intention of raising Christ Jesus from the dead, yes, it was the resurrection of Christ, but it was the first fruits. And it guaranteed all of those in Christ would follow. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Apart from our resurrection, his resurrection wasn't complete, according to what Paul says. They go together. So what do we see here? That, that he's giving them hope. He's giving them promise. He, he moves 23, verse 26, and, and all through this section, he's showing them that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. I want you to think of something today. What has God promised us in regards to the future? Think about some of the promises. I was just jotting some down. His, his return, a promise of new heaven and new earth, 
a promise that we no longer have to fear death, a promise of, 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 of being absent from the body, present with the Lord, a promise of future resurrection, a promise of future judgment, but future reward for believers, a promise that this present age gives way to another age, and all of those are gospel promises and gospel hope based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see something. He doesn't just give us the facts. He, he brings it into the present. And one of the things that we have to be looking for when we're reading the epistles is we have to see how they take great theology and they turn it into great living. And they do that because of the grace of Jesus Christ. But look at how this whole wonderful section ends. Jump all the way down to verse 58. Before you get to verse 58, he's speaking about the future resurrection and hope of the believer. The fact that one day the body that is placed into the ground will be raised up. That the believers in Jesus Christ, that everyone in this room this morning, if you're in Christ Jesus, you have hope that you do not need to fear death. That, that when you die, as we'll see in the next passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, not only will you immediately, your spirit will be in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but you need not fear all that goes on with that casket. You need not fear because the body that goes into the ground, Corinthians says, it's sown perishable, but raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown naturally, but it's raised spiritually. And all through this chapter, as he speaks that death is not the final word, that Christ will put himself over the last enemy, which is death. He says in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, therefore, therefore, how do we live in light of this? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, steadfast. It's speaking of mind and purpose, settled mind, settled, steady purpose, immovable. I love that word. It, it reminds me of a goal line stand. It's first and goal at the two, and you stop them. It's second and goal at the one, and you stop them. I mean, you know, a lot of Bama fans in here, it's the Bama-Penn State goal line stand in the late 70s. It's like, it's like they can't get it in. They can't do it. Why? They're immovable. And Paul says, look, in light of what Christ has done for you, you live differently with a different perspective in the moment. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then he finishes that wonderful chapter, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We see this all through these passages. I want us to see the heartbeat of all of them. Look at the second passage. The second passage is really similar. Last week, we didn't have time to really focus on the details. And even this morning, we won't have time to focus on the details, but I want you to see an overview here. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks almost a little bit of commentary, a little bit different than 1 Corinthians 15, but very similar. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he's speaking about the reality of, he's speaking of that body that's sown in dishonor, raised in honor, sown in weakness, raised in power, but he's speaking a little bit more about that. And in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Friend, if you're like me, you're prone to losing sight that this world is not all that there is. You're prone to start thinking and living in a perspective that this present age is all that is to come. But we have to see something here because reflecting on the gospel and reflecting on promises that the Lord has given us show us that we actually, in this world and in these bodies, we are living as what Paul would refer to as a tent. As a tent. And the body that... That, that wonderful, promised, glorified body that awaits us at the future resurrection, at the Lord's return, is actually referred to as a building here. We are now in tents, and we are longing and awaiting the building that is from God, a house that is not made with hands. It's not of this creation. It's not of this world. It's eternal, in the heavens, I love it because, you know, what did Paul do? He, he said it was appropriate for preachers of the gospel to receive pay and wages, but he did not do that. He was a tent maker by trade. And as a tent maker, he clearly understood tents. He understood the temporary nature of the housing, but he uses that to apply it to this. I love, I was looking at uh, one dear brother in Christ who, who, who puts a lot of quotes together on some passages. I, I love some of the quotes he packaged here. He said, uh, Thomas Watson, um, he says, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. J.I. Packer asked how many Christians live their lives packed up and ready to go. And when we look at this passage, we see the Apostle Paul speak of this longing, a longing of what is to come. He says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And he speaks there of uh, many scholars are confused here exactly what he means about the intermediate state in verse 3 and verse 4. But he's speaking of something that we just need to see the big picture of. He's speaking of our earthly bodies are simply tents, but God has prepared a building, a building that is permanent, a building that is eternal, a building that we will receive at our glorification that we will have forever, and he wants them to live this way. He says in verse 5, speaking of this tent and speaking of the future building, he says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we see the hope and the promise. Just like earlier, we see that Christ died. He was buried. He rose again. 
His resurrection secures those who've trusted in him and their future resurrection. It's complete. It's it's for sure. And now, 2 Corinthians, we see this gospel promise again of earthly tents that one day will be buildings. He says in verse 6 through 8, some beautiful promises. In verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And all of this, he points us to the implications. We saw a little bit of this last week looking at the whole entire section, even back into chapter 4 all the way through the end of chapter 5. But just notice a couple this morning. What does it give me in my life as I live out of the promise of what God will do for me in the future, one thing, it gives me courage. It gives me courage. In verse 6, he speaks of that courage. He, he says there in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, so we are always of good courage. Always of good courage. I was looking at this word courage, and it means to be of good cheer. To have courage, to be full of hope. I tell you, it's uh, if, if this morning you're not of good cheer and you're not filled with courage and you're not filled with hope and confidence, if you're a Christian and that's true, you've lost sight of the promises that God's given you of your future. You've lost sight of the future age. You've gotten caught into the trap of focusing so much on the temporal that those promises and those treasures that are yours in Jesus Christ have been a little bit blurred from your eyes. Because Paul says, as we reflect on these promises of what God will do, it brings us courage. It brings us hope. It brings us confidence. It brings us good cheer. I think about how many times in my life where worry and despair, depression and anxiety in my life and in my circumstances were directly related to a forgetfulness of these truths, a forgetfulness of the promises that God has given me in Jesus. Can you relate with me this morning? But Paul is saying, look, in his writings, when we see these these truths of the judgment seat of Christ, when we see these truths of a new heaven and a new earth, when we see these truths of one day receiving glorified bodies, when we hear these truths of, hey, don't fear death because to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, it's it's typically always coupled with exhortations to living now, to living in the present. He says we have courage. We saw it last time, but look at verse 11, another implication of this truth in 2 Corinthians 5. It doesn't just sit there. It's not just stale. It's not just in a sermon notebook. What does he do? He says, in light of what God has done and in light of what he will do for us in the future, it now gives us a desire to persuade others. It gives us fuel in our evangelism. I love this because I was thinking the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not just teaching in the sense of like instructional that one day we'll receive a future resurrection and that we now can do this and this and this. Remember what Paul says in Romans 6? 
that, that the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the one who gives life to our mortal bodies? That, that, that's so exciting because it points us back to the reality that the only way a Christian can preach the gospel to themselves, the only way a Christian can ponder and reflect by faith on the promises of God is through the power of Christ working within them. And the only way they can live out of it. I love it because the moment that we might be tempted to get back into a one-sided sense of sanctification that it's all about us, we're reminded of the overwhelming nature of the grace of Jesus. So we see this persuasion. We see this courage. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, in light of the future, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He comes into 2 Corinthians, he says, look, be of courage. He says, persuade others. But the third passage this morning, Go over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus, Paul's writing to a young preacher. Titus, he writes in that same sequence to Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy. And in, in, in the passage that we're going to look at briefly is verse 11 through verse 13. But, but it, it flows out of, and I want you to see that you can't reflect on the gospel without seeing the implications that we have in Christ Jesus in the future. Look at how he opens the letter to young Titus in Titus chapter 1. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Do you see what he says here? He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. But look, how is this connected with the hope of the future? In hope of eternal life. Now, wait a minute. Eternal life in the scripture is, is often more speaking about the quality of life than it is the quantity of life. Remember Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. Knowing, knowing the Father through the Son is eternal life, but that life extends all the way into the future. It goes and goes and goes. And Paul, at the opening of his letter, he shows them the gospel hope and the gospel promise and he's showing them that that hope and that promise is not just the salvation they've received. It's the hope to which they will receive the inheritance in eternal life. But then look at chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look at these gospel hope, gospel promise. What is the, the gospel hope and the promise in chapter 2? It's that Christ has come in the incarnation and that Christ will come again and is coming, second coming. But, but, but what are the implications that he gives? Paul bases those hopes and those promises of what Jesus Christ not only has done, but what he will do 
and he brings it into the present by saying, in light of this, live renouncing sin. Live godly lives. That's exactly his point. He says, training us, in verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You, you say no to these things. It's, it's similar to Paul's language in Colossians 3 when he says, put off the old man. Similar to what he means in Ephesians 4 when he says, put off the old man. But then he says, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I love this. It's like, this is not all that there is. There's an age to come. And then he says, how are you to live? Waiting. Some of you have a translation that says, looking for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, as we reflect and ponder on what God has done for us in Jesus, it's meant not just to be factual, informational. It is to change our lives and bring purity through the grace of the Spirit in the present. If your lives today are living in an unholy way, if you're living in a way where you're not renouncing sin, but you're going after it, Either one of two things are true. Either you've never come to know Christ and you're not united with Christ. If you're a believer and that's true, you've lost sight of the implications that the gospel brings you in the present. Where are you at today? You see, this morning, if you're with me and you're thinking, man, my life's filled with anxiety, my life's filled with despair. I was thinking about what are some pop quiz questions you could ask yourself. You know, one would be like, as I think about the future, do I find myself filled with sadness and despair? Do I find myself constantly looking back for the glory days of what it once was? You see, we all are prone to do those types of things. But the Christian has a completely different template. Things aren't getting worse. Things are growing towards glory towards the hope and the fulfillment of a new heaven and a new earth. I told you this before, but one helpful way for the youngest in the room to the oldest in the room is to think about the, the biblical story in like four pillars. Just imagine that you had four big pillars on the stage and you started over here and he said, this represents creation. This pillar represents the fall. And then you came over here and he said, this pillar here represents redemption. There's a fourth pillar, and I really believe that sometimes we confuse ourselves by thinking that those are the only three. They're, they're glorious if they're the only three, but there's more. Creation, fall, redemption, and I think sometimes we think of redemption only as it applies in the present, but redemption guarantees restoration. And what does restoration speak of? A new heaven and a new earth. I often think, you think this world and you think this beautiful United States of America is incredible, and it is, isn't it? You go to some of the places. I was talking to someone just the other day about Multnomah Falls in Oregon and Cannon Beach and talking about the beauty of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco and all that incredible area. Can you imagine what a new heaven and a new earth looks like? We continue here and we see 
not only gospel promise, gospel hope, gospel implications in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, Titus chapter 2, but finally this morning, let's look briefly at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the gospel hope and promise that he gives is centering really on the message that comes starting in verse 7 and goes down to around 13. In verse 7, look what he says. And, but by the same word, and he's speaking of the fact that the God who formed the earth out of water and through water by his word is the God who will bring judgment upon the ungodly. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And continue with what he's writing here. He says in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And notice his, his argumentation. He says in verse 11, a word that's similar to the therefore you see in 1 Corinthians 15, and you see implicated in 2 Corinthians 5. Here he uses the word since. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He covers from not only that, that God will right every wrong, but he promises that to the Christian, because there's no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. You may be with us today and you're thinking, what is the gospel? I'm so thankful you're here because, hear me out, please, that, that, that the Bible teaches that if you are not in Christ by grace through faith, you will endure the judgment of God. You will endure the judgment of God that will literally be marked by an eternal existence in hell. But the picture of the grace and the beauty of, of God working in salvation is that those in Jesus Christ now have been brought and transitioned from darkness into light and rather fear an eternal judgment, they long and they wait with expectation of a new heavens and a new earth in which Jesus Christ will reign forever. And that's what we see in the promise. But the, the implication is what? Live holy lives in the present. Live holy lives in the present. Since, he says, since all these things will take place this way. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And I love these two words he uses, waiting and hastening. 
waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day of God, you know, when we think of the day of God in the Old Testament, into the New Testament, we're speaking about a day in which God will bring judgment, in which God will rectify every wrong and make it right. But we see the hope. I love how he concludes this in verse 14 of 2 Peter 3. Look what he does. He keeps going. The therefore, again, is similar to the word since in verse 11. What are the implications of what God will do in the future for those in Jesus Christ? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. Speaking of what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord of salvation and goes on there and speaks about Paul. So this morning, are you living, looking, anticipating? What would you say this morning are markers that you've lost sight of gospel hope and promises as it relates to the future? In reality, when you think about life right now, are you in despair? Do you put your hopes in this world? Are the things that give you motivation and the things that give you joy temporal, fleeting pleasures? Is it the trip at the end of the month? Is it the trip in the middle of the fall? Is it, is it one more thing? Is it one more thing here? We're all prone to that. It takes one to know one. I'm right there with you. But friend, what, what I pray we would do is we would see that it's the Holy Spirit that takes his word and gives faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And as we dwell in God's word on the promises of the gospel and how it relates to our future hope, it gives not only confidence, it gives hope, it gives courage, it gives joy. It enables us by the grace of God to live in the present with a completely different look. I was finishing that, this up this morning and I noticed there was a, I don't know if it was coming from a trip that Abigail just got back from or it was a trip that she's about to go on this afternoon, but I saw a little bitty bag and it was packed, and it was sitting right by the coffee table, and, and it hit me. I was thinking, you know, I think it was for her trip today, and I was like, you know, this, this morning as we look at these words and these exhortations, are, are you living with your bags packed? Are you living with your bags packed, filled with anticipation, filled with confidence? filled with courage that the best is yet to come? That all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ? I, I can't re-preach it because we're still taking the Lord's Supper this morning. But Hebrews 11, remember all those markers of faith in the family album? What did they do? They looked to the future. They believed in the promises of God. By faith, they brought those future realities and lived out of them in the present. And it changed the way they lived in a world that had no hope. So this morning, we're going to transition here into a time of the Lord's Supper. And here's my invitation to you as we prepare to take this. My invitation to you is, is friend, if you're, if you're with us today 
and you are realizing that you have no hope, the appeal through the word of God is that it's only those who are in Jesus Christ that can live out of this hope. It's only those who are in Jesus Christ that need not fear death. So today I urge you, I plead with you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in him.